from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter. I am known as Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Monday the 12th of June 2017. On this show I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my take on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge I persevere but if I now do me a favor. favor. Let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a Holy crap, there is so much going on in the world. I mean, there's always a lot going on in the world. Whenever students ask me, like, hey, what's up, Mr. P? I always say a lot of things. Like, there's this thing that just happened in Egypt and, oh, did you see what happened in China? And blah, 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 blah. And they're like, what? But even more than ever before, there's a lot of stuff going on because we have a lunatic in the White House and he keeps making everything horrible and it's hard to keep up. Uh, it's also the start of summer, which is awesome. I don't know if you can hear the loud noises outside my window, but someone's running a weed whacker. It's like a whacker for weeds. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to figure out all the things I'm going to do with my summer. I got a lot of stuff planned. I'm working on a new novel. I got a book of poetry I'm trying to put together. I got an article that's coming out in the English Journal, I think. They gave me um, contingent approval. And so I made a bunch of edits, and and they haven't responded with, like, yes, these look great. We're going to publish it. But I'm going to assume that that's what's happening, I guess, I hope. So anyway, um, it's a really hot day here in Madison. It's only 10 o'clock in the morning, but it's sweltering. And um, I mean, I'm from Florida, so it's not too bad, but it's it's pretty hot. And um, I got the fan going, and it's supposed to rain today, so that in the next three days, actually. So that should cool things down a bit. But um, I'm taking a week, I think, maybe. I'm taking a few days at least before I start going with the writing thing because one of the nicest things about summer is that I get to let the creative beast out of its cage because most of the school year I have to keep it locked up because I'm so busy grading other people's creative work. Um, So it'll be nice to have some time to actually write the stuff I want to write. But anyway, um, you know, the thing about, look, first of all, Donald Trump's not the only important person in the United States right now, and it's so tempting to fixate on this man and and only ever talk about him, but that's not a good idea. He's he's just a man. I mean, he's a very powerful man, obviously, but um, we can't fall into the trap of, well, if we get rid of Trump, then everything will go back to normal, and that'll be good. It'll be better, but it's he's only a symptom, right? Donald Trump is a symptom of the problem. The problem is white supremacy. The problem is, you know capitalism the problem is you know misogyny and sexism and hatred of the other tribalism and resorting to violence as a way to solve problems and etc 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 so that said one of trump's approaches to the world and because it's steve bannon's approach to the world and if you don't know about steve bannon there's a really good um documentary film from frontline uh called bannon's war which looks at how steve bannon came to be and um, 
you know, sort of became Donald Trump's right-hand man and all the things he wants to do. So anyway, Steve Bannon's approach is shock and awe. Like, we're just going to push so much stuff on the country that the opponents won't be able to fight back because they're going to get exhausted. They're going to get confused by everything coming at them. And it's hard because the daily show has this segment called ain't nobody got time for that because there's so much stuff happening. And the more things that happen, the less important they seem because there's going to be something else coming along. And so you think, well, I shouldn't get worked up about this because there's this other thing coming along. But some of the stuff is really important, like the rescinding of the American, uh, you know, Health Care Act, the Obamacare, basically. They want to withdraw it, and the Congressional Budget Office has said that that's going to cause 23 million Americans to lose their health insurance. That's not okay. There are problems with Obamacare, of course. We need to fix it so that people aren't paying as much as they were paying. It has to do with risk pools, and, I mean, basically, we need to get rid of the insurance companies and have, you know, a single-payer system like they have in every other industrialized country, but in the meantime, Obamacare is a good step forward. And so for them to say, we're going to get rid of it, it's just atrocious. And the fate of the Affordable Care Act, which is what Obamacare is really called, that rests in the hands of, you know, like a dozen Republican senators right now because they passed a House bill. And so now the Senate has the power to stop it. And the Republicans have a majority. So it's going to rest on our ability to push those sensible Republicans to step up and do the right thing so that 23 million Americans don't lose health insurance. So there's a lot going on. Um, yeah, as always, you should go to wallofus.org. There's dashes in between each of those words, wall-of-us.org for actions you can take. Basically, call your elected officials all the time and tell them, you know, you don't want them passing dumb legislation. Um, the Muslim ban is still held up in the courts. Uh, the Affordable Care Act repeal is, you know, sort of in the Senate. They're debating it right now. Uh, Trump put out a proposal for an infrastructure plan, and Bernie Sanders released a report that basically tears it to shreds, which is important because Bernie Sanders had said, we'll work with Donald Trump on the stuff that makes sense, like infrastructure improvements. There's a lot of stuff in the United States that needs fixing in terms of infrastructure, bridges and roads and, I mean, all the rest of it. Like, that just makes sense. That should not be controversial. But... Trump's not going to approach it in an uncontroversial way. So we'll get to that. Um, yeah, all sorts of stuff going on. I, I mean, I've been making notes for the last few months. Um, hopefully you tuned in for my conversation with Ben Terrell. I've got a couple other interviews that I'm planning to get to later this summer. Uh, my friend Rich in the UK, um, this guy named Just Me, who's a really cool hip-hop artist and mindfulness practitioner who works with kids to help them deal with stress and anger. Um, and then a former student of mine who uh, posted something really cool on Facebook, and I really wanted to get her on the show and just talk to her about stuff going on and how we deal with it. Um, a reminder that I wrote a book called Mind Wipe, Dealing with Stress, Anger, and Ego. I'm selling it at no cost, uh, at, you know, minimal cost. I don't make any profit from it. Um, in fact, if you want a copy, I'll be happy to just mail you a copy. Um, I just want to get the ideas out there, you know, the idea of mindfulness and just taking a minute to do nothing and be in the moment. Tell you what, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, right now it's 10.20 a.m. on Monday the 12th of June 2017, and I'm just staring out my window. Wherever you are, if possible, you know, not while you're driving a locomotive or whatever, but wherever you are, if possible, take a second right now and just do nothing. Just count some breaths. Let's take a few seconds and just be here now. There's a plane going overhead, so this kind of works perfectly. Just breathe in and breathe out. Whatever th you're thinking about, just let it go like clouds in the sky. Just be where you are. Don't look at any screens. 
Just breathe in when you're ready and breathe out when you're ready. Just take another breath. Breathe in and breathe out. It's healthy to do that every once in a while. Sometimes do it for 20 minutes. There are people who do it for an entire weekend. I think it's helpful to just do it every once in a while. There's this notion of the bell of mindfulness. We don't have time to get into it. I got everything I want to talk about. Let's get to some current events, shall we? There's no good of terrorism going on recently and it makes me sick because of course there was an attack in london recently where people got stabbed to death there was a bombing in manchester at a concert um there was a hate crime uh in seattle uh, portland oregon where um uh, two people were trying to defend some muslim women from a crazy guy yelling and screaming at them and he stabbed the two guys who stepped up to try to defend them and, uh, it's, you know, there was a terrorist attack in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan recently, as Chinny pointed out. It's just, you know, it, it seems like the world's going crazy, right? Brother Ali has a lyric on his new album, which is really good, by the way. Brother Ali's new album is called All the Beauty in This Whole World, and it's really good. You should definitely check that out. It's not the hip-hop for this week, but um, it's a good album. Anyway, he has a lyric on his album, World Going Crazy, How Could That Be Unclear? Um, it, it does seem like people are losing their minds. And and here's the thing. The worst thing you can do when everybody around you is going crazy is to also start to panic and freak out, right? This is why it's so important for people who are dedicated to trying to make the world a better place to be able to center themselves and to be able to let go of stress and fear and anxiety especially when things get tense. But you can't do that when things get tense unless you practice doing it on a regular basis when things are not tense. If you can practice on a regular basis finding a baseline of centeredness and calm, then you can maintain a level head when everything around you is chaotic and crazy. Now, that's not a guarantee. You you aren't sure you're going to be able to do it, but you will increase the likelihood that you will be able to you know, keep a level head when people around you are going nuts. And and the biggest problem I see in the world is that people feel like everything around them is falling apart. And so they feel like, okay, well, the world is desperate. I have to do something desperate now. And that's the mindset that drives ISIS. That's the mindset that drives the Ku Klux Klan. That's the mindset that drives Stormfront. That's the mindset that drives, um, you know, just crazy people with guns. You know, when somebody's girlfriend leaves them, this happened in Orlando or something recently, you know, he has to go on a killing spree. And, and, and he said, I wanted to die by cop. And he didn't. He got arrested instead of killed. Um, it's, it's, it's a mindset that says, I, I, you know, giving up is, is, a, is in some ways a luxury, right? If you have people who depend on you, you don't get to give up. You don't get to just say, well, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, AWOL and just do whatever. Um, people who are committed to making the world a better place have a duty to find intelligent, enlightened, long-term ways to have a positive impact. So if you're listening to my voice right now, I thank you for being presumably committed to trying to make things better. And I urge you to make your first step finding ways to be calm and intelligent and and running a long-term approach. And when horrible things happen, 
we have to say, like, look, this sucks. What are some intelligent ways for us to respond with love and compassion and not let our knees jerk and give in to the fear and the anxiety and, and, you know, basically allow ourselves to be terrorized? That's what the terrorists want. So, you know, keep calm, carry on, um, fight fear with love and all that. This was an interesting article from uh, Resistance Report, which, I mean, whatever, I don't know what that is. It's some website, but they've certainly linked to a bunch of stuff to make their case here. So it's a very interesting, um, you know, article that that puts some interesting numbers in front of us. Uh, And the headline is, White terrorists killed more Americans this week than refugees have in 40 years. Now, this came out at the end of May 2017, so it's a little old, but whatever. Um... President Trump is quick to condemn Muslim terrorist attacks, but he has been largely silent about hate crimes carried out by white terrorists. After the latest hate crime in Portland, Oregon, in which white supremacist Jeremy Christian killed Ricky Best and Talizian Namkai Meche on a train after they attempted to stop him from berating two Muslim women, three people have been killed by white terrorists in the last week. The other hate crime-related murder happened at the University of Maryland when 23-year-old Richard Collins III was stabbed to death by Sean Urbanski. Collins was just commissioned as a lieutenant in the United States Army. Conversely, no refugees hailing from any of the countries included in Trump's Muslim ban have ever killed any Americans. The last time any refugees killed any Americans was more than 40 years ago, when three Cuban refugees killed three Americans. Cuba is not included in the travel ban. Ever since the Refugee Act of 1980, no refugees who have fled war-torn areas to seek asylum in the United States have ever killed any Americans. Uh, The Atlantic examined crime statistics and found that refugees constitute far less of a risk to Americans than fellow U.S. citizens. And then they quote from that, and they they have a lot of other numbers and details here as well. And this is an important thing to keep in mind, because it's not as though there's, you know, look, we can't have zero risk, right? But the question is, what's the cost-benefit analysis of closing our doors to people who need help versus the threat that actually exists? And if you listen to Donald Trump and right-wing talk radio and Breitbart and Fox News, you're going to think that there's nothing but ISIS fighters trying to get into the United States. And it's just not true, right? And they're also going to tell you that the systems we have in place to monitor and to screen who comes into the United States, what's called vetting, that's totally inadequate and we have all sorts of crazy terrorists coming in. And that's why Trump keeps talking about extreme vetting. But that's not true. If that were true, where are all the terrorists coming from these countries? They're not, because they're not. So it's important that we look at actual numbers. Now, you know, look, that said, I, I don't have a monopoly on the truth of the numbers. And, I, I, you know, this is where trust comes in because nobody is an expert on the research. Nobody's done all the work required to really say, like, well, here's the truth about how this stuff goes down. A lot of people pretend to be experts. But, you know, we need to look at perspectives from a lot of different points of view. And that includes looking at what Fox News has to say. And that includes occasionally maybe even reading Breitbart, although Breitbart usually is just about hysteria and and just random stuff that, you know, quote-unquote experts say, but they don't have any actual credentials. So anyway, um, yeah, let's look at the truth, shall we? So about this stupid GOP healthcare bill now, um, the CBO score said that 23 million Americans would lose their health insurance. And so Bernie Sanders responded to it by saying thousands of Americans will die. Uh, This is from an article from The Hill. 
Senator Bernie Sanders said Monday that thousands of Americans will die under the House GOP's plans to repeal and replace Obamacare. Quote, if this, if this legislation is passed and millions of people are thrown off health insurance, thousands of Americans will die. Sanders told reporters. I think that's a pretty good Bernie Sanders impression. His comments come after the... No- Thank you, Eric. Yeah, well, Bernie, don't tell them that you're actually here. I want the American people to know that I am in Eric's house right now and I am talking about the issues that matter to American people. I am not going to get caught up in all the nonsense about Twitters and tweetings and I want to focus on the issues instead. Thank you, Bernie. If you mind, if I take the... Please go right ahead. Thanks. His comments come after the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office analysis of the House bill found that by 2026, 24 million people, additional people, will be uninsured compared to under current conditions with Obamacare. Now, that was before the new version of the bill that's coming around and whatever, whatever. So, yeah, Sanders said that the House legislation shouldn't see the light of day. I think that legislation is disgusting. It's immoral. It must be defeated. And I hope there is enough sense among some of the Republicans. Moving on, uh, openly testy, Republicans reject the president's wiretap claims. Now, when he first got into office, and this shows you how long it's been since I've done an actual show where I talk about news articles, um, Trump got in and said that Obama had been wiretapping him. And it's like, what are you talking about? There's no evidence for it. He keeps saying it, even though there's no evidence. And a lot of news outlets keep repeating it, even though there's no evidence. And, you know, CNN has gotten to the point where they're like, uh, Trump has made this claim. There is no evidence to support that claim. And, you know, that's what news ought to do, right? Like, you, you can't exactly say he's lying because the technical definition of a lie is that somebody is saying something that they know to be untrue and you would have to know what's actually in Donald Trump's head to say whether he's lying. But I think we could safely say he's making stuff up, right? If somebody doesn't have any evidence for a thing, then they're making it up. Or they're believing bad information. Either way, it's totally unacceptable. So anyway, uh, in a striking repudiation, Republicans on Wednesday threatened subpoenas and vented openly about the lack of evidence behind President Trump's tweet that President Barack Obama had wiretapped his phones in Trump Tower during the 2016 campaign. The Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Representative Devin Nunes of California, told reporters on Capitol Hill that, quote, I don't think there was an actual tap of Trump Tower and that Mr. Trump, if taken literally, is simply, quote, wrong, end quote. And this is a continuation, by the way, of the civil war between establishment Republicans like Paul Ryan and John Boehner on the one side and Tea Party fanatics like Sarah Palin and her homeboys on the other. Trump is trying to walk in the middle, but he's also an unhinged idiot who believes every nonsense claptrap he sees on Breitbart. So, you know, there have been interesting studies of, you know, something will appear on Fox News or on Breitbart's website, and then like two minutes later, Trump's tweeting about it. So it's it's it, it, what we're seeing really is a civil war in the Republican Party. And and in fact, we saw this when the first um, Obamacare bill repeal was defeated in the House, because a lot of people like I subscribe to our conservative on Reddit and a lot of people there were mad. They were like, you know, oh, because Paul Ryan's the head of the Republicans in the House. And so they said, well, Paul Ryan's a rhino, meaning Republican in name only. In other words, he's not, you know fanatical enough about getting rid of Obamacare, for instance. And I know a lot of people around the world, especially my friends in the UK, might be thinking like, what is wrong with American politicians? Like, your top priority is to strip people of health care. Well, it's not that simple, because a lot of Republicans, the way they see it is, they want to reduce the size of government. 
So if that's your top priority, then having the government be involved in healthcare is a non-starter because they believe that it's going to lead to horrible outcomes like the worst things they've seen coming out of Cuba, for instance, or whatever. So, you know, they're, they're worried that any, giving any ground on the government healthcare thing will is a slippery slope. It's going to lead to Armageddon in terms of destroying the American healthcare system. And look, if you buy into that kind of fanatical ideology, it makes sense to fight tooth and nail to get rid of Obamacare. But this is the danger of ideology and blind adherence to it. Because if you're convinced that nothing is worse than government-run health care, then you're, you say it's okay if 23 million Americans lose their insurance. The ends justify the means. That's why that thinking is so dangerous. Because it doesn't matter what actual outcomes happen. What matters is that it's better than what could happen under the alternative plan, right? And again, this is the exact same mindset that ISIS takes. Yes, we're killing innocent civilians. I dare say, you know, when you approach these people at the age 15 and you say, should you kill innocent civilians? Of course, they would probably say no. But once you get it into your head that, well, infidels are not even human, then okay, anything goes because you're then, you're right. You are correct. You are blessed by the power of truth. And once you have that certainty, then you can do whatever you want. So as always, I encourage people to resist that kind of thinking, which says you're right and you're certain you have to know that you're right and you have to stick to your guns and you can't engage in any dialogue about it because that's how they get you. It's nonsense. All right, moving on. Uh, I promised you that we would talk about Bernie Sanders and his report on Donald Trump's infrastructure package. So here it is. Thank you again, Eric, for allowing me to talk about this very important issue. The infrastructure proposal that Donald Trump has come out with is complete nonsense. And we can't be lulled to sleep by his slick-talking chicanery. Thank you, Bernie. Uh, so in 2000, this is the article. This comes from Vox, I think. Yeah, Vox.com. Uh, in 2008, the city of Chicago sold the rights to its parking meters to Morgan Stanley for more than $1 billion. Over the next four years, the city's parking rates skyrocketed by 800%. In 2011, Virginia entered a 58-year contract with a private company to manage the tolls of the city of Norfolk's Midtown Tunnel. The private operator jacked up tolls with a pricing scheme that gave low-income drivers bills as high as $18,000. These stories are highlighted in a new report from Senator Bernie Sanders, set to be released later on Wednesday, intended to warn of the dangers of President Donald Trump's proposed infrastructure plan. Trump wants to hand over more critical public infrastructure to private investors who will squeeze profits from the American people by putting up new tolls and exorbitant user fees, his report says. That would be unacceptable. And by the way, in case you're wondering, yes, I am doing the hand gestures. If you've ever seen Bernie Sanders talk, you know he gestures a lot when he talks. Like all good leftists, Noam Chomsky, Cornell West, Bernie Sanders, they all do things with their hands while they're talking. So anyway, um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, and it's so sad because, look, again, like Donald Trump would be a lot better at being evil if he weren't so stupid. Right? If he weren't so corrupt, he could do a very good job of being evil. Because if he were to put out a sensible, intelligent infrastructure plan that actually made things better, he would get a win. People would be like, yay, Trump, his approval ratings would rise. And then he could do other evil stuff. But that's not how he approaches things. He thinks privatize, 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 
And what that means is Morgan Stanley and Bear Stearns and Goldman Sachs and Citibank and all these huge companies will just get richer and richer, and the rest of us will pay more and more, especially working in lower class people. And it's so sad because America is the richest nation in the history of the world, and for us to even have homeless people, hungry people, poor people, is just a disgrace. There's no reason for it. So, whatever. However, there was some good news in Dutchland, Holland, uh, where the prime minister claims victory over anti-Muslim candidate Geert Wilders. And, of course, we saw the victory in Paris of Emmanuel Macron, who I think is doing some interesting things, because I don't know if you saw, but Emmanuel Macron did a thing where he said, Il faut, I don't know how to say it, uh, we have to make, um, make Earth great again. And it was like, ooh, burn, because this was right after Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which, I mean, I don't even get that, because I tried to understand where the Republicans were coming from on this, so I went to our conservative, and they were like, yeah, finally. And people were like, what's the problem? And and the, the top comment was like, it was a bad deal, it would penalize business, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like... No, it really wouldn't. Because someone else made a good point. I wish I could remember who it was. But anyway, it was on Twitter. And it said something like, anytime there's a challenge in terms of weather, right? Businesses find amazing creative ways to overcome that obstacle and turn a profit, right? Anytime there's a challenge with like, you know, resource shortages, companies find creative ways to overcome it and make a profit, right? Goldman Sachs is going to make a profit every quarter, right? McDonald's is going to turn a profit every quarter. That's what companies do. But as soon as you start to say, like, you can't burn that much fossil fuel, they, oh, my God, it's going to be the end of all business. And it's just ridiculous. Meanwhile, solar and wind and renewable sources, that's exactly where the job opportunities in the future are coming from. The idea that you're going to cling to coal and, what, Pittsburgh steel or whatever, like that's going to save American, the American middle class and help poor people? No, absolutely not. Because the other thing is, that, and I've said this a million times on the show, so I apologize for being repetitive, but robots are doing all the work anyway. It, it's the, the, the danger now to American jobs and you know family wealth isn't really from outsourcing, although, because all the jobs have already been outsourced, right? Everything's made in China. You go to Home Depot and try to, I was trying to buy mini blinds recently. They didn't have any that were made in the United States. If I searched for two weeks, I might be able to find some mini blinds made in the United States, but it just, you know, our systems are structured in a way that makes it very, very difficult. So anyway, um, you can be ideologically pure if you want to spend two weeks doing everything. The point is that The real danger to American workers is coming from automation because robots are doing more and more of the work. Lowe's has a robot that can help you find whatever nail you're looking for. And it's just going to keep accelerating like that. So the question then is, okay, how do we make life good for people when robots are doing all the work? Well, think about it for five seconds and you'll agree that what Stephen Hawking said is correct. We take all the wealth that the robots create and we put it in a big cake and we give everyone a slice of that cake. And if you own the robots, okay, maybe you get three slices of cake or something. But that's it. But that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we say the people who own the robots get all the wealth that the robots create. That's not okay. So anyway. Um, yeah, so the Dutch Prime Minister won. Uh, the Dutch political establishment appeared Wednesday to fend off a challenge from anti-Muslim firebrand Geet Wilders, according to initial vote counts, a victory in a closely watched national election that heartened centrist leaders across Europe who were fearful of populist upsets in their own nations. 
Um, and look, don't get me wrong. I mean, look, the terrorist attacks that are happening and that happened recently in England, the, the attacks that happened in Paris, I mean, that's scary stuff, right? And the threat of, you know, ISIS terrorism in Europe is real in a way that's not real in the United States, right? Like we don't, we aren't really facing that same kind of threat. So I understand the fear, right? But, but, but fear itself does not conquer terrorism, right? And I'm not going to pretend they're easy answers. And some people just want to sweep it away and be like, it's not really a problem. And, and, you know, the real, I mean, you know, I don't know the scale of the problem, right? Like I, I recognize that, you know, that news article I just shared about refugees killing Americans, like it's way overblown. But of course, you know, we don't hear much about the other ways that people die, right? And and so keeping things in perspective is very important. When a terrorist attack is all over the news, it feels like that's the biggest threat. But Low Key had a lyric in one of his songs, and I haven't checked it, so I don't know if it's true or not. Somebody out there do the research, or maybe I'll do some research when I have time. But he said... More Israelis die from peanut allergies than terrorism, which if that's true, that's a very um, sobering statistic, wouldn't you say? So it's just whatever. Okay, moving on. Um, Yeah, so this guy named Hassan Aden was detained at JFK International Airport, and he's a cop, right? And yeah, so he posted a thing on Facebook uh, talking about details of my CBP detention at JFK International Airport. Uh, yeah, so here's what he wrote. I was held for an hour and a half. I'm skipping ahead to the crucial part. I asked several times, how long of a detention do you consider to be reasonable? The answer I was given by CBP officer Chow was that I was not being detained. He said it with a straight face. I then replied, but I'm not free to leave. How is that not a detention? I was in a room with no access to my mobile phone to communicate with my wife and family about what was happening. My movements were restricted to a chair and they had my passport. And he had the audacity to tell me I was not being detained. Maybe fear and detention is the new mission of the CBP and the Constitution is a mere suggestion. Uh, Customs and border protection is what CBP stands for. Uh, He has uh, been a citizen for 42 years. Um... And he was a police officer for many, many, many years. I don't remember exactly where he says. Um, but anyway, I spent, yeah, here we go. I spent nearly 30 years serving the public and law enforcement. Since I retired as the chief of police in Greenville, North Carolina, I founded a successful consulting firm that is involved in virtually every aspect of police and criminal justice reform. I interface with high-level U.S. Department of Justice and federal court officials almost daily. Prior to this administration, I frequently attended meetings at the White House and advised on national police policy reforms. All that to say that if this can happen to me, it can happen to anyone with attributes that can be profiled. No one is safe from this type of unlawful government intrusion. This experience has left me feeling vulnerable and unsure of the future of a country that was once great and that I proudly called my own. This experience makes me question if this is indeed home. My freedoms were restricted and I cannot be sure it won't happen again and that it won't happen to my family, my children, the next time we travel abroad. This country now feels cold, unwelcoming, and in the beginning stages of a country that is isolating itself from the rest of the world and its own people in an unprecedented fashion. High levels of hate and injustice have been felt in vulnerable communities for decades it is now hitting the rest of America and this is such an important story for us to tell because it's so tempting to be like well you know look the Muslim ban's being blocked and Trump's probably going to get impeached soon he's hoist with his own petard and he's done stupid things with Russia so he's going to be out of there soon and we'll have someone more sensible in its place and maybe that's true but that doesn't change the fact that 
while he's in office, and probably even when he's out, if Mike Pence comes in, he's not going to change course, right? He's the same type of politician. I mean, think about what you know about Mike Pence. He stood next to Donald Trump and said, this is the kind of man I want to be like. That's evidence enough to say I don't want Mike Pence in office either, right? The, the, the climate of fear and hostility toward the other, that's a deep thing that has been unleashed in the last, you know, five, ten years. And that's not as easy to get rid of as a single leader, yeah? So we have to fight against intolerance itself and this fear that's everywhere and fight against the power of the state to put that fear into action in making the lives of especially Muslims and people who look Muslim miserable. Moving right along, she voted for Trump. Now her husband is being deported. An Indiana woman who voted for President Donald Trump was stunned to discover that her husband, an undocumented immigrant from Mexico, is set to be deported as soon as today. And this is from like several months ago. This is from the Huffington Post. You know, whatever. Uh, Despite her spouse's immigration status, Helen Bernstein said she agreed with Trump's hardline policies. Quote, we don't want to have cartels here. You don't want to have drugs in your high schools. You don't want killers next to you, Helen told an Indiana public media earlier this month. You want to feel safe when you leave your house. I truly believe that. And this is why I voted for Mr. Trump. Trump said the good people would not be deported. The good people would be checked, Helen said. And now her husband's being deported. And this is the thing. Trump sold everybody a bill of goods which said we're going to go after the bad hombres and the smart people among us recognized that that was a way of saying we're going to go after everybody who's here illegally. Now, when I posted that to Facebook, I had a lot of people saying, well, I don't feel bad for that guy because he was here illegally. He could have tried to become a citizen, blah, 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 blah. But as Jose Vargas, I don't remember his full name. He's the Filipino guy who made a really interesting documentary film, which I still haven't watched, called Undocumented or Documented. And he's got head of this organization called Redefine America. And he's doing a lot of really good work in changing our mindsets about what it means to be an undocumented immigrant. He says there is no path to legal status. Like it just doesn't exist by and large. There's a few, very few people who are able to get in and, and get, you know, citizenship status. But for the most part it's not a possibility so the idea that you know all these people on my facebook feed were like well they should just you know i don't feel bad for him he should be deported i I, i'm sorry it's the hysteria of the other once again it's that ideological certainty that these people committed a crime therefore they need to go away but what crime did they commit right that's the question because if the only crime they committed was crossing a border without permission, I'm sorry, I don't consider that to be a grave threat. I don't consider that to be an important thing that we ought to use our tax dollars to chase after. If people sell drugs, if people commit crimes, then you know we can talk about it. But then the Intercepted podcast had a really interesting interview with this woman who said, we got to get rid of this mindset that putting people in prisons and, and punishing everybody is the answer to our problems, which I agree, it's not. So, you know, whatever. But I'm trying to meet people halfway, right? If you want to talk about going after murderers. Okay, we could talk about that. But Trump is stoking this hysteria and now it's hurting people like this woman. All right, whatever. Moving on. So this is from June 2016. This is 10 years ago. Wow. Uh, 10, did I say 10 years ago? One year ago. 10 equals one. Right. Uh, two new studies, well, old studies, find that racial anxiety was the biggest driver of support for Trump. Uh, And this is from the Washington Post. More recent data is bringing the drivers of Trumpism into sharper focus. And what we're seeing is striking. Racial attitudes may play a larger role in opinions toward Trump than one's thought. Economic concerns, on the other hand, don't seem to have much of an impact on support for Trump. 
Two recent studies bear this out. In the first, Hamilton College political scientist Philip Klinkner analyzed data from the 2016 American National Election Study, ANES, uh, survey, a representative sample of 1,200 Americans, to compare feelings and attitudes toward Donald Trump and Democratic rival Hillary Clinton. He explored how economic opinions, racial attitudes, and demographic variables predicted an individual's feelings toward Trump and Clinton. He found that one factor was much stronger than the other. Quote, my analysis indicates, he's a nerd, so let's do a nerd voice. My analysis indicates that economic status and attitudes do little to explain support for Donald Trump, he wrote for Vox last week. More to the point, quote, those who express more resentment toward African Americans, those who think the word violent describes Muslims well, and those who believe President Obama is a Muslim have much more positive views of Trump compared with Clinton, Klinkner found. In Klinkner's data, responses to questions such as, do you think people's ability to improve their financial well-being is now better, worse, or the same as it was 20 years ago? And, compared with your parents, do you think it is easier, harder, or neither easier nor harder for you to move up the income ladder? Had little effect on a person's preference for Trump or Clinton. But, Klinkner found, racial attitudes were highly determinative. Moving from the least to the most resentful view of African Americans increases support for Trump by 44 points. Those who think Obama is a Muslim, 54% of all Republicans. Hang on a second. Think about that. 54% of all Republicans, half of Republicans, think that Barack Obama is a Muslim. He's not. Again, there's no evidence for that. He attended a madrasa for like a year when he lived in Indonesia at the age of seven. That's the evidence for Obama being a Muslim. That's it. That's the only evidence we have for that claim. So if you, I mean, the idea that we live in a fact-based world, I'm just stunned. So. Uh, the, the people who believe that are 24 points more favorable to Trump and those who think the word violent describes Muslims extremely well are about 13 points more pro-Trump than those who think it doesn't describe them well at all. So, you know, we heard a lot after the election about white working class. Oh, what about the white struggling working class? And, you know, look, there's no doubt that white workers have been hurt by the neoliberal reforms that were championed by Reagan and Clinton and Bush and the other Bush and Obama. So if you're going to talk about the effect that those neoliberal policies have had on workers, fine. But A, white workers aren't the only workers. B, the white working class was not the majority of Trump's base. Let's be real about this. This is another thing the woman on uh, Undisclosed said. Poor people don't vote much. Yeah? Trump energized middle class and wealthy white people with the fear of the other got them to donate a lot of money and get active at his rallies and you know yeah presumably he energized some poor white people too but that's not the majority of his base so the constant hand wringing about what about the poor white people well i'm sorry what about the poor black people whose lives are going to be significantly worse under trump now and what about all the middle class white people who gave in to their fear of the other and had nothing to do with any of that fear of economic change. So, whatever. All right, moving on. Fracking news now. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, fracking is a process whereby companies drill a mile down into the earth, 
push in a whole lot of weird chemicals that we don't know what they are, and they break apart the shale down there, and they release natural gas and other valuable resources. The Interior Department is going to withdraw an Obama-era fracking rule filings reveal. The Trump administration, this is from the Washington Post, the Trump administration plans to withdraw and rewrite a 2015 rule aimed at limiting hydraulic fracturing or fracking on public lands, the Interior Department indicated in court filings Wednesday. The move to rescind the 2015 regulation, which has been stayed in federal court, represents the latest effort by the new administration to ease restraints on oil and gas production in the United States. Interior's Bureau of Land Management issued the rule in an effort to minimize the risk of water contamination through the practice, which involves injecting a mix of chemicals and water at high pressure into underground rock formations to force out oil and gas. Like I just said, you're welcome for the repetition. Under the new proposal, companies that drill on federal and tribal lands would be subject, no, this old proposal, to stricter design standards for wells and for holding tanks and ponds where liquid wastes are stored. They would also be forced to report which chemicals they were pumping into the ground. But last June, U.S. District Judge Scott Scavdahl in Wyoming ruled that the Interior had exceeded its congressional mandate in choosing to regulate the controversial drilling practice. While Obama administration officials appealed that decision to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, the appeals court asked, the appeals court asked, asked the Bureau of Land Management on March 9th if the agency's position had changed now that Trump is in office. Guess what? It had. Moving on to foreign policy, uh, Andrew Basevich wrote a really interesting piece in the New York Times called The Never-Ending War in Afghanistan. And, you know, look, if we don't understand the terrorist attack that happened recently in Kabul, we have to think about the U.S. occupation in Afghanistan, which has been going on since November of 2001. Right? The military brass deserves some of the blame. Soon after Mr. Mattis's hearing, General John, I'm jumping right in the middle of the article, but uh, General John Nicholson, the latest in a long line of American commanders to have presided over the Afghan mission, arrived in Washington to report on its progress. While conceding that the conflict is stalemated, General Nicholson doggedly insisted that it is, quote, a stalemate where the equilibrium favors the government. In other words, we're going to defeat the Taliban any day now. That's what we've been hearing for the last... God... September 11th was 2001. So we've been in Afghanistan for 16 years now. And we haven't defeated the Taliban, but it's going to happen any day now. Just you watch. Carefully avoiding terms like victory or win, he described his strategy as hold, fight, disrupt. He ventured no guess on when the war might end. Now, coming out of the article for a second, I mean, look. The Taliban is a group of religious fanatics. There's no way around it. Okay, we have to accept that as our starting point. But that's not the only way to think about the conflict in Afghanistan. Because it's also true that a foreign power is occupying that country. Okay, so the Taliban wouldn't be able to get anybody to stuff envelopes for them if the United States were not occupying every city with military hardware, regularly conducting drone strikes, killing innocent civilians and carrying out search missions that, you know, make the lives of locals very difficult. There's a resentment that goes on there. George W. Bush at one point talked about he wouldn't want to be occupied. He was talking about Iraq, but it's true about Afghanistan as well. So look, I'm not saying it would be an easy thing to fix Afghanistan, but I think that letting a country rule itself is a good general principle for international relations. And if we haven't done what we went there to do in 15 years, 
I don't think it's possible for us to do it. They call Afghanistan the place where empires go to die. And it just doesn't make sense to me to keep our troops in Afghanistan. For what? I mean, could things be worse in Afghanistan? Yes, things can always be worse, right? But I just, uh, whatever. Let's keep going with this article. Adjusted for inflation, American spending to reconstruct Afghanistan now exceeds the total expended to rebuild all of Western Europe under the Marshall Plan. Let me repeat that because it seems kind of important. Adjusted for inflation, American spending to reconstruct Afghanistan now exceeds the total expended to rebuild all of Western Europe under the Marshall Plan. Yet to have any hope of surviving, the Afghan government will, for the foreseeable future, remain almost completely dependent on outside support. In other words, we've got almost nothing to show for the fa- I mean, think about what Western Europe was like after the Marshall Plan. And think about what Afghanistan is like today. It's better than it was. Ted Rawl did a good book about going back to Afghanistan recently. He talks about all the roads that have been built. And that's good. But... I mean, the government is not stable, and we have not defeated the Taliban. As with budget deficits or cost overruns on weapons purchases, members of the national security apparatus, elected and appointed officials, senior military officers, and other policy insiders accept war as a normal condition. And I don't accept war as a normal condition. All right, moving on. The New Yorker had a really good piece. It's really, really long, but it's really good, and I really recommend you read it. It's called Trump, Putin, and the New Cold War. Uh, Here's a selection of quotes from that. I got two paragraphs I will read for you from this article. Because here's the thing. The article mainly said, it avoids the oversimplification we get so much of the time, which says Trump is Putin's puppet, Trump was colluding with the Russians. I mean, maybe he was. We don't know, right? It's all really unclear right now. But there's there's a very interesting dynamic between the United States and Russia that took shape after the end of the Cold War up until today. And that's what the article does. Is it looks at you know how Trump evolved in his relationship with Russia, how Putin evolved as a KGB you know spy up until his current position as the head of Russian government and the new Cold War that developed, especially because the U.S. invasion of Iraq was such an important turning point. All right. Putin, in his first few years in office, was relatively solicitous of the West. He was the first foreign leader to call George W. Bush after the destruction of the World Trade Center towers. When he spoke at the Bundestag later that month, he addressed its members in German, the language he had spoken as a KGB agent in Dresden. He even entertained the notion of Russian membership in NATO. Americans' invasion of Iraq, which Putin opposed, marked a change in his thinking. Bush had made some progress with him on bilateral issues such as nuclear arms proliferation. But by 2007, Putin had grown deeply disenchanted and came to feel that the West was treating Russia as a, quote, vassal. Robert Gates recalls a security conference in Munich in 2007 at which Putin angrily charged that the United States had, quote, overstepped its national borders in every area and that expansion of NATO was directed against Russian interests. Quote, people were inclined to pass it off as a one-off, Gates said, but it was a harbinger, end quote. And that's all I'm going to read from this article. But again, it's really interesting. And if you have an actual desire to learn about what happened, what's going on between Trump and Putin and Russia and the U.S., I really encourage you to read it because it's a really interesting article. They talk about cyber warfare. They talk about you know Putin's life and, and where he came from and all sorts of other things. It's really, it's really good. 
Um, all right, a couple more articles here in the current events section. Woof! We're going on for a long time. I'm starting to get hungry, man. we got to keep moving here. And we're already 48 minutes in, and we're only on the first section. What the? What? The New York Times had an editorial recently about drones, and it's really good for a change. Preventing a free-for-all with drone strikes. Mr. Obama was persuaded to impose sensible constraints on the use of drone strikes between 2013 and 2016. The White House would decide which individuals outside the traditional war zones of Iraq and Afghanistan could be targeted, and there had to be, quote, near certainty that no civilians would be killed. In traditional war zones, military commanders made these decisions without interagency review, and the threshold for acceptable civilian casualties is less strict. And Jeremy Scahill did a really important uh, documentary film called Dirty Wars, which looks at, you know, these kill lists and where they come from. Who knows? And who's on it? Who knows? And all the civilians that get killed, lots of them. Um, Yeah. So now comes disturbing news. President Trump and his administration are moving to dilute or circumvent the Obama rules. This could have disastrous outcomes, not least because Mr. Trump seems even more enticed by drone warfare than Mr. Obama was. In the days since inauguration, the tempo of airstrikes has increased significantly. And and there's the thing coming out of the article. Like, look, the, the danger, of course, is that people who say, hey, Trump, you should stop killing people with drone strikes, people are going to say, well, y'all didn't say anything when Obama did it, which in some cases is true. Now, there are other people, I'm pointing to myself, you can't see it, but I am, uh, we were opposing those drone strikes when Obama did them too. Amnesty International spoke out against them. Human Rights Watch demanded accountability. We wanted information. There were some brave people in the Congress who said, we need information about these drone strikes. It's not okay. They, in case you don't know, when the United States conducts a drone strike under Obama's rules, anytime they killed anybody, they said, okay, the person we killed was a terrorist. Therefore, the people around them, if they were, I think it was 15 years and older, they were terrorists too. So when they say no civilians were killed, well, according to their logic, that's true, but that's because they don't think anybody around them could possibly have been a civilian. So the whole thing is madness. It's a Kafka-esque perversion of the idea of due process because the due process was a bunch of, you know, guys met in the Oval Office and said, we should kill this guy. He's a bad guy. And the president goes, okay. And then we sent a flying robot, and they killed that guy and anybody near him. And we said, well, they were obviously a terrorist. Otherwise, why would we have sent the flying robot to kill them? And everyone near him is a terrorist, too. (sighs) Mr. Trump has already granted a Pentagon request to declare parts of three provinces in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia is fighting Iranian-backed Houthi rebels, to be a, quote, area of active hostilities, end quote. This, the Times has reported, would enable more permissive battlefield rules to apply. I should also say, coming out of the article, that Yemen is one of four places in the world right now. I don't remember where the other three are, but it's facing a famine. There are going to be millions of people at risk for starvation if the war in Yemen is not halted, which it's not because the United States is continuing to sell weapons to the Saudi regime, which is using them to bombard Yemen. And as a result, millions of people might starve to death. America! Oh, yeah! The president is also expected to soon approve a Pentagon proposal to do the same for parts of Somalia, where militants of the Shabaab, who are linked to al-Qaeda, threaten regional stability. Both designations are supposed to be temporary, giving the administration time to decide whether to rescind or relax the Obama rules more broadly. 
Mr. Trump should heed the advice of national security experts who have urged the retention of strict standards for using force in non-battlefield areas and warned how even a small number of civilian deaths or injuries can, quote, cause significant strategic setbacks to American interests. He has already seen how a badly executed mission can have disastrous results. The raid in Yemen in January that resulted in the deaths of a member of the Navy's SEAL Team 6 and numerous civilians, including children. Now, that disastrous raid should make us furious, but here's the thing. As soon as the president starts bombing a foreign country, generally speaking, the media starts clapping and everybody goes, well, we got to support the president because that's what happened when he sent those missiles into Syria. Fareed Zakaria, who don't get me started on that guy, he was like, this is Trump's first really presidential moment. And uh. and there were people on Democracy Now! who said, and I, I understand their frustration, this one woman said, look, at least we have one base where Assad can't send planes to drop barrel bombs on the civilians of Syria. Which, again, look, don't get me wrong, Syria, Syria has no easy answers, right? Russia is backing the Assad regime in the same way the United States is doing with the Saudis in Yemen. Uh, Russia is doing with the Assad regime in Syria. And so the war just drags on and on and on. And the UN has said over and over again, we need a ceasefire. We need to stop the hostilities. And Russia says no. And so the killing continues, just like the United States did with East Timor and Indonesia. So until Russia steps aside, there's no hope. The question is, how do we get Russia to stop blocking UN action to cause a ceasefire and get some peace to Syria? Well, I don't think the U.S. bombing Assad's, you know, air bases is going to do anything. So, but but it's it's tricky because as soon as the president starts military action, everyone says, well, I can't speak out against that. You know, I just support the troops or whatever. Ah. <sighs> Anyway, moving on. Thanks to Mighty Ice Dude, who sent me a news article that said, Russia just effectively banned Jehovah's Witnesses from the country. Uh, For the past few months, Russia's 175,000 Jehovah's Witnesses have been on edge. After years, even decades, of persecution against the religious group, the Kremlin moved to get rid of the denomination for good. In February, Jehovah's Witnesses were labeled extremists and locked out of their offices. Whoa! Then, Kremlin officials launched a legal effort to ban the faith. That case quickly wound its way to the Supreme Court, where Justice Ministry Attorney Svetlana Borisova said the Christian group posed a, quote, threat to public order and public security. In court, Borisova brought in former followers to testify that top church officials took, quote, total control of their, quote, intimate life, education, and work, end quote. Lawyers for the Jehovah's Witnesses roundly deny those allegations. It didn't matter. After six days of hearings, the Supreme Court sided with the government on Thursday. They ruled that the group St. Petersburg headquarters and 395 churches could be seized and liquidated. All church activities, including worship and door-to-door evangelizing, were banned. Those who defy the ruling face a fine of several thousand dollars and six to ten years in prison. So here's Russia cracking down on religious freedom, and it sucks. Moving to Paraguay. Protesters set fire to Congress after a secret vote. Holy crap. You think it's bad in the U.S. when there's some nasty words traded between senators. How about protesters setting... And this is the other thing. When the... I don't remember when it... It wasn't the Women's March. I think it might have been the March for Science. or At some point, look, anytime these protests happen, there's anarchists who are desperate for something to smash, as Kate Tempest says. Stay tuned for the end of the show to hear her. Um, 
she uh, so anarchists will always come out and smash some windows and maybe start a car on fire or something in order to you know in their minds that, and again it's that blind certainty we know what's needed here we're going to start the revolution man we're going to raise the cost of imperialist aggression and fascism we're going to bash the fash and and that whole thing and I mean look don't get me wrong I'm not crying because Richard Spencer got punched in the face I don't mind him getting punched in the face because he's a scumbag. But, of course, that is opening the floodgates. Now, notice people who say, you shouldn't punch fascists in the face. They never say anything about flying robots killing civilians in Pakistan. But as soon as a Nazi gets punched in the face in Washington, D.C., suddenly they're pacifists. But whatever. The point is, there's always a... Look at the riots. Look at the... In Berkeley, when Milo Yiannopoulos wanted to speak, there was a riot. No, this is a riot when protesters set the Congress on fire in Paraguay, okay? That's a riot. LA in 92 was a riot, okay? Riots happen sometimes. But one Starbucks being having its window smashed, that's not a riot, okay? Let's not get hysterical here, shall we? So what happened in Paraguay? Protesters stormed Paraguay's Congress building and set it on fire after a secret Senate vote to approve a bill that would allow President Horacio Cartes to run for another term. Now, again, imagine if U.S. protesters set Congress on fire when they took a secret vote. We'd have to set the Congress on fire every week. Attention NSA agents listening in. I am not in any way even joking about endorsing the idea of setting the U.S. Congress on fire. Of course not. I am a nonviolent activist. I don't even believe property destruction does anything good but again this secret votes happen in the united states all the time hundreds of police clashed with hundreds of people clashed with riot police in asuncion on friday and broke into congress battering down entrances and fences and shattering windows once inside they ransacked the offices of lawmakers who backed the reform and started fires television images showed the fire service said some 30 demonstrators and police were injured in the violence earlier in the day the vote on the constitutional amendment took place during a special session held in a closed office in congress rather than on the senate floor i guess we don't actually have those kinds of secret votes but we have votes all the time that happen in ways that people don't know about. Enough of these current events. Let's talk economics. Oh my God, we're an hour in and we're only getting to economics. We're going to have to pick up the pace. Australian Business Review. Oh, God, here's some things from Australia. Let's say high-frequency trading suffers from stable financial market. Revenues at high-frequency trading firms. Now, for those of you who don't know, high-frequency trading is what happens when you have robots that trade stocks for a fraction of a second, and they make fractions of a penny, and they do it over and over again so they can make millions of dollars trading all day, every day. Revenues at high-frequency trading firms from U.S. equities trading were an estimated U.S. $1.1 billion last year, down from U.S. $7.2 billion in 2009, according to research from firm TAB. Such strategies are more successful when markets are volatile because big price swings offer traders more opportunities to capture profits. But volatility has come down drastically since the years just after the global financial crisis. The CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, a measure of U.S. stock market volatility has averaged just 11.6 so far this year, down from 24.2 in 2011, according to the Wall Street Journal Market Data Group. I think I veered into, like, New York Italian mobster. The data group, forget about it. 
Anyway, I, I didn't give up on that Australian accent. I probably should have because I'm sure it's not very good, but I don't know. Whatever. You, you don't get better if you don't practice, right? Market Watch. This is from the United States. High frequency trading has reshaped Wall Street in its image. So this is the danger. is not just that high frequency traders have established themselves, but that they've changed the idea of trading itself. Um, yeah, we're all high-frequency traders now. So wrote Credit Suisse on Wednesday, and this is from several months ago, in a report that outlines the huge impact that high-frequency trading has had on Wall Street, resulting in much higher overall trading activity and a bias towards parts of the market that are easiest to trade with high-frequency strategies. In other words, high-frequency has reshaped the financial industry in its image. Quote, uh, a high-frequency, or I, I guess Credit Suisse said this, we've started to see more HFT-style techniques from brokers and other sophisticated traders, the firm said. Therefore, because of their frequent order cancellations, which are required to maintain queue priority and manage risk, such brokers will look very similar to an HFT shop when one looks at the tape. And for those of you who don't know, high-frequency trading caused what's called a flash crash in 2010. Now, we haven't seen more of those since, which is good, because I don't want flash crashes to happen. But my fear is that they could, that they, they, the, 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 first of all, nobody knows why these robots are making the trades they're making, okay? Normally, what used to be normal, uh, when people traded or sold stocks, we knew why, right? A company announced that they had lower profits this quarter and their stock price sank. That made sense, right? But in the 2010 flash crash, for instance, robots just started selling everything, and then other robots saw that data and said, we better sell too. And so the stock prices of all these companies just drop, 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 drop. Now, fortunately, after that happened, as soon as the robots realized, well, I guess whatever happened is no longer happening, buy, 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 and the price climbed back up again by itself. But what happens when that doesn't happen? We're just trusting that the robots are going to do the right thing in the future. We don't know what happened, but they recovered pretty quickly. So maybe the robots have gotten better at things. I hope so, but I'm still nervous about leaving the entire nature of Wall Street and therefore the entire U.S. economy in the hands of robots doing things for reasons that nobody understands. Not the regulators. The only people who understand why the robots do what they do is the individual trading firms that own the robots. But here's the thing. There is an emergent property that comes out of these robots interacting with each other. So if I own a robot and only I know why my robot does what it does, and you own a robot and only you know why your robot does what it does, then when our two robots interact with each other on the floor of the stock market, neither of us knows what's going to happen when our two robots interact. So that's what an emergent property is. There's this new thing that gets bigger than the sum of its parts, right? I have a secret program. You have a secret program. Put together, each of us only knows half of what's going on. And then when those two robots interact together, there's this new thing. And that's just two robots. There's thousands and thousands of these robots. So the emergent property that comes out of this, right now it looks fine, but it's like the guy falling out of the 100-story building. He goes, 99th floor, so far so good. 98th floor, so far so good. That's where we're at, I think, in terms of these robots. Secret robots trading stocks and causing flash crashes, filling my pockets with mucho mula fat cashes. As I said in Martin Skrilla, what, what? All right, meanwhile, uh, Whole Foods had, there's a really good article in The Guardian about Whole Foods. 
And the headline was, Whole Foods represents the failures of conscious capitalism. Tell it! Preach! A failing firm isn't exactly news. In the doggy dog world of global capitalism, lots of companies have their moment in the sun only to crash and burn a few years later. But Whole Foods was supposed to be different. John Mackey, the company's chief executive, has long argued that Whole Foods is wired differently, that it runs on a conscious capitalism model that outsmarts the competitive pressures of our for profit system through creativity and innovation. In his book, Liberating the Heroic Spirit of Business, Conscious Capitalism, Mackey argues, I bet he didn't have to struggle and hustle to get that book published, huh? Not that I'm bitter. Mackey argues that his conscious capitalism model achieves success by honoring not just shareholders, but all stakeholders, including workers, communities, and the environment. Free market capitalism, according to Mackey, is actually a, quote, beautiful, heroic system that, properly harnessed, can operate, quote, in harmony with the fundamentals of human nature and the planet. We don't need to rein in corporations through onerous labor and environmental regulations, he writes, because the virtuous feedback loop of honoring stakeholders plus innovation will leave unconscious firms such as Walmart in the dust. The conscious capitalism model is appealing. It's simple, easy. We can avert looming environmental catastrophe by becoming conscious consumers who frequent conscious companies. After all, shopping at Whole Foods is a heck of a lot more fun than lobbying for regulations on corporations or convincing people to consume less. More Whole Foods, less Walmart. Problem solved. Mackey was right about one thing. People do love to shop at Whole Foods. Or at least, they used to. These days, that demon called competition has caught up with the Austin-based company. Behemoths such as Kroger, Safeway, Target, and even Walmart now offer a wide range of organic produce for considerably less than Whole Paycheck, which is what some people call Whole Foods. Mackey's conscious company has gone from Wall Street darling to Wall Street basket case in the blink of an eye. The future of conscious capitalism appears equally bleak to placate shareholders and mitigate declining same-store sales. Last year, the company jettisoned its unique purchasing model that wove together a network of autonomous regional production hubs of small farmers and mom-and-pop food startups. So, once again, this is the way capitalism works. Look, you can say you're doing great things with your company, but it doesn't matter because all that matters is the way your company looks. And if Walmart can snatch a little bit of that shine, make it look like they're doing good things, continue to buy everything in China, continue to pay their workers nothing, continue to ravage the environment, then they're going to win your market share, or at least enough of it to make you panic, and then you start doing more of the things that Walmart does, and then Walmart becomes the standard again for the way companies operate. Why? Because capitalism doesn't care about the planet. Capitalism only cares about one thing. Profit this quarter. That's all that capitalism cares about. I'm sorry, people. This is the nature of the beast. Okay? And everybody who cheerleads for capitalism always says, well, capitalism is going to work in the end because it's the best way to ensure freedom and blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, the planet continues to suffer and our habitat continues to go away and we're told it's not a big deal and we need to support business and the planet's going to die, but whatever, because you won't be so cold in the winter.
when it comes to education. Why? Because his secretary of education is named Betsy DeVos, and she's terrible. It's like on The Simpsons when Homer Simpson was getting mad about the fortune cookies he was getting at the Chinese restaurant. These fortunes are terrible. And the manager comes up, is there a problem, sir? And he goes, these fortunes are terrible. This secretary of education is terrible. <sighs> Trump's education budget takes aim at the working class. This is from The Atlantic. And The Atlantic always has good writing, and this is a particularly good piece. Many of the spending goals outlined in Donald Trump's proposed education budget reflect his campaign rhetoric. The president, who has long called for reducing the federal government's role in schools and universities. Hey, are you sensing a theme here? This is that standard Republican ideology that says the role of government needs to be reduced. We need smaller government. Where did that come from? It came from a guy named Grover Norquist who said, I want to reduce government to the size where you can strangle it in a bathtub. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, but government does some very important things. Like, for instance, created the internet. Remember that? How did the internet come about? Big government spending. You're welcome. Um, so the president wants to cut the education department's funding by $9.2 billion, or 13.6% of the budget approved by Congress last month. The few areas that would see a boost pertain to school choice. Ding, 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 ding. An area that Trump and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos have repeatedly touted as a top priority. In the White House spending proposal, hundreds of millions of the dollars that would go toward charter school and voucher initiatives, while another $1 billion in grants would encourage states to adopt school choice policies. And let me stay for the record that school choice has been a watchword here in Wisconsin. We have one of the oldest school choice plans in Milwaukee. And some of the people who run those charter schools are saying they're doing amazing things in neighborhoods where the public schools aren't doing a very good job. And I I've seen some evidence of that, but I've also seen a lot of research which says that the schools generally do exactly as well as the public schools do. Sometimes they're a little better, sometimes they're a little worse. Meanwhile, there's a really um, a lot of charter schools and, and school you know school choice schools. They don't submit themselves to the same kind of testing that public schools do. So it's kind of hard to measure. It's apples and oranges. Meanwhile, a lot of charter schools have the ability to block people who aren't motivated, who aren't, you know, willing to agree to certain standards and who they can block a lot of special ed kids. So that's going to skew the numbers, isn't it? So I'm not saying charter schools can never be a good tool to have. In fact, the American Federation of Teachers, one of the two biggest teachers unions in the United States, was one of the first proponents of charter schools. But it's a question of how they're used and who's in charge and what rules they're operating under and whether they allow teachers to be unionized or not. Most charter schools don't. But other aspects of Trump's funding plan fly in the face of his past statements on education, raising confusion about his priorities. He wants to cut state grants for career and technical education, CTE, for example, by $168 million and nearly cut in half funding for the roughly $1 billion federal work-study program, according to the Washington Post and other outlets. Both CTE and work-study are education models that enjoy broad bipartisan support. In fact, in Wisconsin recently, uh, our idiot governor, came to the school where I teach recently in order to shake hands with the, uh, you know, career training, you know, automotive students and talk about how great the technical training programs are, work study. Um, they enjoy broad bipartisan support and are particularly palatable to Republicans and the white working class voters who clinched Trump's election. There we go again. Tellingly, there's little consensus between Trump's spending proposal and the bipartisan appropriations bill unveiled by Congress earlier this month. 
So, yeah. Ah. Meanwhile, here's an article from The Atlantic called How School Choice Affects Test Scores. At last week's gathering of school choice supporters, there was an awkward fact in their midst. A wave of new new studies had shown that students receiving a voucher did worse, sometimes much worse, on standardized tests. That was the inconvenient verdict of studies examining programs in Louisiana, Ohio, Washington, D.C., and Indianapolis, where the advocates had convened for the annual conference of the American Federation for Children. U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, the group's former leader, gave the keynote address. But many of the school choice proponents who had long made the case that their favored reform works had an explanation at the ready. So, of course, they do. Jeb Bush, uh, the former Florida governor, only alluded to the recent studies. Quote, in spite of the few research projects of a narrowly identified group of students, the simple fact is when you create a marketplace of choices and informed parents, the children do better, he told the audience. And this is the thing, this is that ideology. It's obvious that when you create them, I mean, you know, when they use buzzwords like choice and freedom and marketplace, and everyone's like, well, that, oh, yeah, who wouldn't want that, right? If I told you you could only buy burgers from Government Burger Shack and the, uh, McDonald's and Burger King and all the rest of them will go away, well, obviously you'd want choices, right? Who wouldn't? Yes, I agree with that. But the, what about the question of what's being sold at Government Burger Shack? If Government Burger Shack, I know this is crazy because it would never happen, but think about it. If Government Burger Shack sold burgers that tasted exactly like McDonald's burgers but were only 80% of the cost, wouldn't you rather go there? No, maybe not because you like the McDonald's brand. You feel good going to McDonald's rather than going to Government Burger Shack, especially when you have to say it like that. Where you guys want to get lunch? Ooh, let's go to Government Burger Shack. I don't even like saying the name of that place. I don't want to eat there. But their burgers taste exactly like McDonald's. They even got the secret sauce right at Government Burger Shack. Yeah, but it's just—it's such a boring gray building. It's like when the IRS took over Krusty Burger. Anyway, <laughs> two tax burgers withhold the lettuce. Uh, yeah, that's all the education. Let's talk about killer robots. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we could have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. I'm getting tired, and I can only imagine how exhausted you must be listening to this nonsense. Uh, we're going to try to get through this as fast as we can. Okay. Uh, yeah. From the New Yorker, uh, from the new Cold War article. Right. I put this paragraph here because it has to do with robots. A post-election study by two economists, Matthew Gintzkow of Stanford and Hunt Alcott of New York University, found that in the final three months of the campaign, fabricated pro-Trump stories were shared four times as often as fabricated pro-Clinton stories. The researchers also found that roughly half the readers of a fake news story believed it. A study led by Philip N. Howard, a specialist in Internet studies at Oxford University, found that during the second debate of the general election, automated Twitter accounts known as bots generated four tweets in favor of Trump for every one in favor of Clinton, driving Trump's messages to the top of trending topics, which mold media priorities. Internet researchers and political operatives believe that a substantial number of these bots were aligned with individuals and organizations supported and sometimes funded by the Kremlin. So this is fascinating because notice they're not saying Clinton didn't also have bots that were being, you know, there weren't also pro-Clinton bots. 
And and this then makes the news media, CNN or whoever, talk about the Internet's on fire with reports about X, Y, and Z now, right? This is trending on Twitter now. Why? Because more robots like Donald Trump than like Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's basically a way of saying it, right? So in a way, the Russia connection is very important, but I think the robot connection is also very important, because more robots like Trump than Clinton. <laughs> That's going to be the name of this article. Robots love Trump. Uh, yeah, okay. In grammar news, lack of Oxford comma could cost main company millions in overtime dispute. I am not going to break this down in detail. I'm just going to tell you the bare facts. And if you want to learn about it, you can go and read about it. Because I've had people asking me, what the hell is this about? And I'm like... It's a very arcane way of describing it. A class, okay, for those that don't know, the Oxford comma is when you have a comma before the conjunction in a series of things. So if I say my favorite foods are eggs, bananas, and cereal, then an Oxford comma would be eggs, comma, bananas, comma, and cereal. Not using an Oxford comma would be eggs, comma, bananas, and cereal. So Sometimes it matters. Most of the time it does not, even a little tiny bit. It's just a matter of what style guide you're using. So ask your editor or teacher or professor or whatever. However, in this case, it matters a lot. A class action lawsuit about overtime pay for truck drivers hinged entirely on a debate that has bitterly divided friends, families, and foes. The dreaded, or totally necessary, Oxford comma, perhaps the most polarizing of punctuation marks. And they explain what I just explained. A lot of people feel very, very strongly about it. The debate over commas is often a pretty inconsequential one, but it was anything but for the truck drivers. Note the lack of Oxford comma, also known as serial comma, in the following state law, which says overtime rules do not apply to the canning comma, processing comma, preserving comma, freezing comma, drying comma, marketing comma, storing comma, packing for shipment or distribution of agricultural produce, meat and fish products, and perishable foods, period. Does the law intend to exempt the distribution of the three categories that follow, or does it mean to exempt packing for the shipping or distribution of them? Again, I'm not going to go into it. It's an interesting case, but I've said everything I want to say, and I don't care, and I'm moving on. Nodrones.com. That's K-N-O-W, drones.com. Uh, they have a very interesting website, which is all about, let's get some information about these flying robots that are killing people in places like Pakistan and Yemen. Targeted killings violate human rights enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is part of customary international law. The UDHR guarantees everyone the right to life, due process, and privacy. All of these rights are violated in the process of assassination by drones and other methods. The UN Human Rights Committee, charged with monitoring whether states' parties are living up to their obligations under the ICCPR, said in 2014 it was concerned about the U.S. practice of targeted killings with drones. It focused on the lack of, quote, legal justification for specific attacks and the lack of accountability for the loss of life resulting from such attacks. Um, and then they had a page on the website called Fully Robotic Drone War in which they say this. In the new world of fully automated killing, who is responsible as machines roam around killing without any record of precisely what they have done? Who will be held responsible for the deaths of specific civilian or combatant casualties? It should be the person who ordered the drones to be launched, but will the human tendency to want to avoid responsibility for deadly acts find cover in the complexity of fully robotic technology? Answer yes! All right. If nobody went to prison or nobody got 
again, you know, I'm thinking about that woman who said we should stop thinking about punishment for everything. But if look, if we didn't change anything after Abu Ghraib, right? If nobody was held accountable for that, if nobody was held accountable for the 2008 financial disaster, what makes you think anybody's going to be held responsible? I mean, look at RoboCop, right? When the Ed 209 went nuts and killed that dude in the board meeting, spoilers, uh, the head of the company just went, I'm very disappointed, right? And that was the end of it. So don't think that anybody at OCP is going to get in trouble if their robots go nuts and kill people. Uh, these questions apply, for example, to the emerging technology of drones swarming, a system that enables drones to communicate with each other and fly and attack targets like swarms of insects. And if you don't believe that drone swarming could be a problem, watch that Black Mirror episode with the bees. <laughs> Moving on. First robotic cop joins Dubai police. Wearing a police cap and moving on wheels, the robot features a computer touchscreen on its chest that can be used to report a crime or inquire about speeding tickets. Hey, robo-buddy, how do I pay my speeding tickets? You are a hostile citizen! Get down on the ground! No, no, I just want to get down on the ground! Okay, don't shoot! (laughs) I'm very disappointed. Uh, A 5-foot, 5-inch tall and weighing 100 kilograms, the robot can speak six languages and is designed to read facial expressions. Quote, our aim is to raise the number of robots to 25% of the police force by 2030, said Brigadier Khaled Al-Razuki, head of smart services at Dubai Police. Oh, thank goodness. Soon, 100% of our police will be robots. And you know what? Here's the crazy thing. As soon as I said that, I started to think, would robots be more or less likely to kill unarmed black men? That's an interesting question. Because that's the argument for robots in war and on police forces. Because they would not give in to those human fears and psychoses. But then there will be other fears and psychoses that robots have programmed into them. Right? So whatever. Uh, From the You Can't Make This Stuff Up file, Kentucky Coal Mining Museum converts to solar power. I am not kidding about this. Some of you have heard about this. The Kentucky Coal Mining Museum in Benham is owned by Southeast Kentucky Community and Technical College. Communications Director Brandon Robinson told WYMT they're hoping to save money with the switch. Quote, we, it's West, uh, it's Kentucky. So I'll do, if I did the uh, earlier accents with Australia, then I have to do a Kentucky accent. We believe this project will help save at least eight to $10,000 off the energy costs of this building alone. So it's a very worthy effort and it's going to save the college money in the long run, said Robinson. The work began Tuesday to power the energy, not by coal, but by the sun. It is a little ironic, said Robinson, but you know, coal and solar and all the different energy sources work hand in hand. And of course, coal is still king around here. Robinson said the project was funded through an outside foundation. It cost thousands of dollars, but Trey Sexton, the owner of the company installing the panels, believes the result will pay for itself. I think everybody knows we're talking about attractions like this. These high-volume, low-traffic municipal attractions. Has, something has got to give to keep their expenses down, said Sexton. How? I mean, that's just beautiful irony, right? Solar power is paneling, the is powering, uh, solar panels are powering the Cole Museum in Kentucky. Wow. And finally, in the Killer Robots file, uh, this is from the Amazing Grace section. Gratitude for my torturers. This is amazing. It's from tricycle.org, and this is about a Buddhist monk who was tortured by Chinese police. 
On that day, even if I was only a penniless refugee and a sick man with a gangrenous leg, I was not the victim. The victims were my jailers. I had left prison, but what about them? They were locked up in a vicious spiral that would hound them during this life and for many lives yet to come. Sometimes when I think of the bad karma built up by the people's armed armed police officers who tortured me, I feel tremendous compassion for them. Moved to tears, I pray for them more than for anyone else, and I have completely forgiven them. It is only thanks to my forgiveness that one day, as soon as possible, I hope they may free themselves from their infernal karma. I dedicate to them the positive energy of my praiseworthy actions so that they may find peace of mind at last. And that's such a beautiful concept that I will also say that I wish to devote the positive energy of my praiseworthy actions to those students who have done foolish or hostile things in classes, to those teachers who have done foolish or hostile things in their classes. I I wish that everybody can find compassion and forgiveness in their lives so that they can know the peace that I know, unburdened by the hostility and rage that so many people face and allow to consume them. This is part of what mindfulness is about. So in a way, we end where we began by an attempt to encourage that peace of mind, that calm, that serenity, so that we can all be more enlightened, more compassionate, more peaceful, and we can thereby try to make the world a little more compassionate and peaceful. All right, time to talk about some hip-hop. I am going to have to praise Chopper Kelly forever and ever for linking me to Kate Tempest. She is a British poet who is just unbelievable. Where exactly is Kate Tempest from? Let me find out through the power of the internet. Kate Tempest is from, she's an English poet, spoken word artist, and playwright. Um, In 2013, she won the Ted Hughes Award for her work, Brand New Ancients, which I have not read, by the way. In 2015-16, she was a visiting fellow in the Department of English at University College London. Um, She grew up in Broccoli, Southeast London, and she was one of five children, and she grew up in a, quote, part of town, but in a nice house where there was always food. Uh, and she's just an amazing poet. She's got a number of albums that are out. Her latest one, Let Them Eat Chaos, is, I think, her best work. And she has a song on there. Oh, my goodness. It's called Europe is Lost. And I'm going to play the whole thing because it's that good. So buckle in, people, and get ready to hear this Kate Tempest song, Europe is Lost. And I hope you like it as much as I do. is lost, America lost, London lost, still we are clamouring victory, all that is meaningless rules, we have learnt nothing from history, the people are dead in their lifetimes, dazed in the shine of the streets, but look how the traffic's still moving, systems too slick to stop working, business is good and there's bands every night in the pubs and there's two for one drinks in the clubs and we scrubbed up well, washed off the work and the stress and now all we want some excess, better yet a night to remember that we'll soon forget all of the blood that was bled for these cities to grow all of the bodies that fell the roots that were dug from the earth so these games could be played i see it tonight and the stains on my hands the buildings are screaming i can't ask for help though nobody knows me hostile worried lonely we move in our packs and these are the rights we were born to working and working so we can be all that we want and dancing the drudgery off but even the drugs have got boring but sex is still 
good when you get it To sleep, to dream, to keep your dream in reach To each your dream, don't weep, don't scream Just keep it in, keep sleeping in What am I gonna do to wake up? I feel the cost of it pushing my body Like I push my hands into pockets And softly I walk and I see it This is all we deserve The wrongs of our past have resurfaced Despite all we did to vanquish the traces My very language is tainted With all that we stole to replace it With this I am quiet Feeling the onset of riot Riots are tiny, those systems are huge Traffic keeps moving Proving there's nothing to do Cause it's big business, baby And its smile is hideous Top-down violence and structural viciousness Your kids are dope Stopping. Medical said it is, but don't worry about that, man. Worry about terrorists. The water levels rising, the water levels rising. The animals, the elephants, the polar bears are dying. Stop crying, stop buying. But what about the oil spills? Shh. No one likes a party pooping, spoil sport. Massacres, massacres, massacres. New shoes. Get a wise children murdered in broad daylight by those employed to protect them. Live porn stream to your preteens' bedroom. Glass ceiling, no headroom. Half a generation live beneath the red line. Oh, but it's happy hour on the high. Street Friday night at last, that's my treat All went fine till that kid got lost in the last bar Place went nuts, you can ask all who it was madness Roll and red, pure clabber and about them immigrants I can't stand them, mostly I mind my own business They're only coming over here to get rich, it's a sickness England, England, patriotism And you wonder why kids want to die for religion It goes work all your life for a pittance Maybe you'll make it to manager Pray for a raise, cross the bays, days off on your beach, babe Cannon the anarchists are desperate for something to smash Scandalous pictures of fashionable rappers in glamorous magazines Who's dating who? Political cash in an envelope Caught sniffing lines off a prostitute's prosthetic tits Now it's back to the house of lords with slap wrists They abduct kids and f*** their heads of dead pigs But him in the hoodie with a couple of splits Jail him, he's the criminal Jail him, he's the criminal It's the... Of it all generation, the product of product placement and manipulation. Shoot em up brutal, duty of care, come on new shoes, beautiful hair. Bullshit, saccharine ballads and selfies and selfies and selfies. And here's me outside the palace of me. Construct yourself in psychosis. Meanwhile, the people were dead in their droves, and no, nobody noticed. Well, some of them noticed. You could tell by the emoji they posted. Sleep like a gloved hand covers our eyes The lights are so nice and bright and less dream But some of us are stuck like stones in a slipstream What am I gonna do to wake up? We are lost, we are lost, we are lost And still nothing will stop, nothing pauses We have ambitions and friendships and courtships To think of divorces, to drink off the thought of The money, the money, the oil The planet is shaking and spoiled And life is a plaything, a garment to soil Toil the toil can't see an ending at all, only the end How is this something to cherish when the tribesmen are dead in their deserts To make room for alien structures Develop, develop and kill what you find If it threatens you, no trace of love In the hunt for the bigger buck Here in the land where nobody gives a f- I mean, is that not straight fire or what? Such a good track And her other tracks are also good The, the, the Let Them Eat Chaos is the album that's from it's a concept album. It's, it's telling a bunch of different stories of people who live in this flat. Um, that one is preceded by a little description of a woman who comes off from a double shift. She's a carer working nights. She holds the beer to her thirsty lips and necks it till it's finished. It's 4.18 a.m. again. Her mind is full from all she's done that day. She knows that she won't sleep a wink before the sun is on its way. She's worried about the world tonight. She's worried all the time. She don't know how she's supposed to put it from her mind. 
Anyway, um, yeah, that's Kate Tempest. She's awesome. Next time I'll tell you about just me, and maybe someday I'll talk about that Radio Lab thing. Um, but stay tuned to future episodes. We're going to interview Rich Webster, and we're going to talk about that Red Pill documentary. <laughs> and I'm going to be interviewing people about mindfulness and other things. So thank you so much, everybody. Let's do a quote of the week, shall we? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end of this near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Wait up a minute. Hamid Dabashi is the Hagop Kevorkian Professor of Iranian Studies and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. He recently wrote a piece for Al Jazeera headlined, Is America Dying or Is It Being Born Again? He discusses a piece in the New York Times recently describing a wave of nihilism that is supposedly sweeping America. And here's what he says. Trump and his family and friends can have their one or even two terms of power. The Obamas can join the Clintons to deliver their gibberish speeches and nonsensical books to the highest bidder. The Zionists might be giddy with this corrupt lunatic in power, helping them steal more of Palestine. The rest of the Americans, however, the immigrants old and new, know only too well on whose stolen land they have mercifully landed and have gratefully joined forces with them to advance forward their struggle to new horizons. Trump has not weakened or divided us. He has united and strengthened us. We the immigrants, we the Muslims, Jews, working class, women, the LGBTQT communities, we the parents negotiating between two to three jobs to make ends meet, we students burdened with back-breaking loans, we conscientious public school teachers, yeah! committed environmentalists, responsible scientists, we the liberation theologians, philosophers, theorists, critical thinkers, we cannot afford nihilism. The very idea of it is ridiculously alien. Those anorexic models parading with those ridiculous dresses wrapped around their plastic surgery wounds on the red carpet at Met Gala might have pangs of nihilism if they are off their Prozac. Not us. We will not bend backward to accommodate power and play dead. We will fight back. The defiant future of this country is already born and buoyant in the beautiful birth of the children we have mothered and fathered in this country on this blessed land of Native Americans where generations of African slaves have suffered to call it theirs and now our homeland. Amen. Amen. Say it loud. That's it, people. We are done. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and my book about mindfulness and multimedia and lots of other stuff. Shoutouts this week to you for listening to this whole thing. Everyone who has shown so much love for the Mind White book, and Tara for their packages. Again, Stu for being awesome. Chopper Kelly for linking me up with Kate Tempest and everybody who sent me things. Mighty Ice Dude and Turtle502 is always good for a laugh on Twitter. And the Duchess because she's just amazing. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. What can I say? I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with me. Give with feedback or questions. Send me stuff I can talk about. ESP at FBESP.org. Or you can tweet me at Duke Scath. I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. You know something else nice about summer? I, during the school year, I have 24 minutes to eat lunch. 
because we have a half an hour for lunch ostensibly, but it always take we it, that includes the six minutes of passing time between when lunch ends and the next class begins. So that's 30 minus 26 minutes is 24 minutes, but it usually takes like four minutes to finish with the previous class and, you know, reset my PowerPoints or, you know, gather the papers, you know, there's just stuff you got to do when you're a teacher. So that generally leaves me with about 20 minutes for lunch. And in that time, very often we have to make other copies. We have to, you know, run to the mailbox or, you know, there's often other things you have to do during those 20 minutes. And in summertime, I can take as long as I want to eat lunch. I can go anywhere I want. I'm going to get Chinese food for lunch today. 